From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Knowing where your vinegar comes from is a very important thing if you care about where your food comes from. So I only hope people actually go out and visit vinegar makers and vinegar factories and breweries and acetayas in Italy in the same way they would a vineyard and taste wine because it's also so amazing to taste that product in its place. Hi, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to the summer season of Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Now, we're nearing the later half of summer, which means one thing. Juicy, ripe tomatoes are in season. I've been enjoying tomatoes often, and who doesn't love alfresco dinners in the summer? Made simply of fresh tomatoes, some basil, fresh mozzarella, and all splashed with a wonderful, tangy, balsamic vinaigrette. Now, vinegar is the star of today's show. Uh, We're joined by Michael Harlan Turkle, our guest today, who you heard from just now. Michael's a photographer, a podcast host, and of course, a cookbook author. His latest and first solo book is Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. Part culinary and historical textbook and part travel diary, Acid Trip takes readers on not only an exploration of the potent pantry staple, but also through the people and places where it's created and the food that's enhanced by it. Now, unearthing the stories behind food is not new to Michael. He's co-written several cookbooks, including Awful Good with Chris Cosentinal, about how to cook the innards or often discarded parts of animals, and he co-wrote The Beer Pantry with Adam Dooley. Now, Michael's also a podcast host. He currently hosts Food 52's Burnt Toast podcast and has hosted more than 300 episodes of his show on Heritage Radio Network, The Food Scene. Michael's personal acid trip began as an accident that evolved from an obsession to a global investigation of the chemical phenomenon that includes an intimate look at the people and cultures shaped by vinegar over centuries. And Michael's learned when life gives you vinegar, you make a cookbook. We were so glad to sit down with Michael at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and we're here today to talk about your book, Acid Trip, which is obviously the story of your drug-induced travels, <laughs> right? All well, in San Francisco, <laughs> it gets confused. I see, I see. <laughs> no, uh, actually, Travels Through the World of Vinegar um, is the subtitle. So tell us a little bit about how the idea for a book on acid came to you. I don't know if it was an idea as okay. much as it was an accident. Um, mm. Much, much as the history of vinegar as well, you know, parallel to that of wine, beer, and all these ferments that cultures didn't know how to stop because there was no refrigeration. It was made pre-industrialization, so wine or alcoholic spirits just turn into vinegar naturally. And so I kind of would turn on to this subject almost in that same organic matter um, that I left a bottle of red wine out and open. Mm. Yeah. And it turned into vinegar. And it's not an old wife's tale. It works. Um, then the second time that it really hit me, uh, I had a party at my house and a whole bunch of beer left over and filled up a empty barrel in the backyard because, you know, all Brooklynites have empty barrels in their backyard. <laughs> right. We're such steampunks. <laughs> um, that happened the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So it overwinter, snow fell. And in the spring, once it melted... I opened up that barrel and it was the most intoxicating thing I've ever smelled. And I don't mean like it was a liquor. It was the best malt or beer vinegar I've ever had. Yeah. So I asked myself, how, how do I do that again? And I took a couple of years reverse engineering that process to make vinegar. And then that, that was it. I was obsessed. And how long ago was that when you first sort of had that accidental vinegar experience? I believe about six years ago now. Okay. 
And then as you sort of reflected on in your book, you were first exposed to the concept of vinegar as a photography student. It's true. And I, I, I didn't know exactly what the smell was. Mm-hmm. I, I knew, knew that idiom, piss and vinegar, and I thought I just right. smelled like that because no one would sit next to me in the, on the <laughs> tea in Boston. Um, but in art school, taking photo classes, um, you know, through the process of developing negatives as well as prints, there is acetic acid. So that vinegary smell exists in the dark room and existed all over my, my clothing right. as a student. Um, but I didn't think twice of it until I actually started writing this book that my first encounter wasn't as a cook, but it really was as a photo, you know, student. And so you decided to write a book on acid. And then how did you decide to approach it in the way that you did? There's a lot of historical context here, you really sort of look at the role that acid has played um, in cuisines dating back 1000s of years. I have this problem that (laughs) when I want to know about something, I want to know all about it. No dig into the origins and the etymology. I'm a good lifeline for any of those game shows if you need to call and there's a random (laughs) trivia answer. Um, But with vinegar, well, first, writing a book is intimidating. You know, I was a cook for years. I was a photographer, still am. Right. Um, So it was inauspicious that this actually happened. Um, it feels like a ruse that I ever got to travel the world and study vinegar and then put it in a tome. Right. So when this project first started, I was so intimidated that I said, to write a book, the only way I can do this is in vignettes and little clips and phrases, as I think photos are as well, mm-hmm. you know, that mise-en-scene that you take out. So I started writing in journals, um, tasting notes, uh, meeting with chefs and talking about recipes. My own explorations, uh, not only in making vinegar, but visiting vinegar makers. So once I started traveling the world, I realized it it was kind of my diary through the world of vinegar. You know, um, it it was so linear. um, It was so chronological because I was building information and knowledge as I went. So it turned into a travelogue more than a traditional cookbook. Um, as much as I understand the template of headnotes, uh, I tried to weave those into narratives because I think it's so much more important, at least for me as a person, to learn through story. Um, if you can't be there and if you can't taste, uh, setting a sense of place is, is you know, paramount. Yeah, I, I think that's really true and very present in your book. You divide the book into um, various sort of countries and regions where you've traveled. Did you always know you wanted to include a lot of other chefs' works, uh, recipes, and perspectives in the book as well? I mean, that's how I learned everything I know. Yeah. You know, as a cook, you learn from whoever is in the kitchen with you, from the head chef down to the dishwasher. Right. Um, As a photographer, I've been in and out of hundreds upon hundreds of restaurants. And even though I have a camera in hand, doesn't mean I'm not learning how to cook. Right. So I always ask questions. I I might be shushed uh, a couple more times than, you know, chefs. You know, I'm inquisitive about this stuff. And I take this knowledge, go home and try to practice it, try to improve upon my skills or the theory behind what these cooking applications are. So... It would have not been me. Uh, this book wouldn't have reflected my trip um, right. if it didn't have these other people in there. They've been such linchpins of my career. And truthfully, no one knew or no one knows who I am. <laughs> so it felt kind of odd writing a book that was solely my recipes. Um, 
when I knew which dishes I wanted to highlight and I went to the experts. Same reason I do a podcast. It's the best networking tool unintentionally that I get to sit down for 30 minutes once a week with an expert in whatever field I want to explore. Right. I just did that over and over with vinegar in this book. So to take a step back a little bit then, for folks who don't know as much about vinegar, haven't yet read the book, can you tell us a little bit about how vinegar is created and maybe how that's changed over time? It definitely evolves, but I don't think it's changed that much. Um, I think it's the same variables and controls. It's just we've able to We've defined what the variables all are, and we've been able to control them. Right. Um, so from a scientific standpoint, vinegar is nothing more than 4 to 6% acetic acid in solution, and that, that solution's water. Yeah. So it's a very low acid. Not low acid in the pH scale, but you know, small amount of acetic acid that, that we're playing with in a culinary region. Um, what's crazy about acetic acid is over 10%. It's uh, not caustic, but it's not the greatest thing to imbibe. Um, at 25%, it certainly is caustic. 50%, it was used as a cauterizing agent in styptic in the field during World War II. Right. And then, you know, in the 90s plus, glacial vinegar is used in hospitals and in the medical fields. Uh, so it, it's a pretty potent acid, and that's why it has to be diluted down for us to enjoy and ingest. But acetic acid is is an acid that's converted from alcohol through this bacteria called acetobacter, and it eats away at the alcohol and then spits out acetic acid. So the conditions of that, you know, turning alcohol into vinegar, all you really need is oxygen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to let it breathe. It's It's a living organism, so it actually needs that to feed. But what it needs to feed on is not only the alcohol, but these conditions of the right amount of sugar to right, make the right amount of alcohol to make the right amount of uh, acetic acid. So the way I make vinegar is I primarily make honey vinegar um, mm-hmm. for two reasons. Uh, it's delicious. And it's the most consistent thing I've made for the past five years. Um, and economically, it made sense from a business perspective because I mix one part honey to about five to seven parts water, depending on the bricks or the sugar content. I do a double ferment in a barrel, so it turns into mead, which is honey wine, and then turns into vinegar. And it's almost non-interventionist. It just happens now. Right. Whether or not it's the indigenous yeast inoculated in the right way, or I have it in the right place, or it's the right time, it's it's a pretty low-impact product. Yeah. And that's kind of why I got into it, too. Um, My wife hates when I use the word lazy. When I wanted to make a product, I said, what's the laziest thing I can do? Because I didn't have a time uh, as a photographer, as a podcaster. Uh, I travel a lot. Um, and at first, I tried to make miso. And after six months, and I yielded nothing. And it was frustrating. I said, no, this this isn't working out for me. That's when the vinegar thing happened accidentally. Okay. And it completely changed my path. Why do you think it's so important for people to experiment with making their own vinegar and understand sort of the difference there and what that process is like? Oh, because you can make a better vinegar than you can buy at the grocery store. Right. Like not even slightly better, tenfold, hundredfold. Um, Vinegar from supermarkets or industrial vinegars are acidic in the sense that they hit you in the chest, they make you cough, and you feel that sensation on your palate, but you mm-hmm. don't taste anything really. Right. And what you do taste is concentrates put into those bottles. You don't actually taste the purity of what it's made from. What's so amazing about, and I'll use the term real vinegar, is that it's made from real ingredients. Uh, you should turn a bottle around and see that there are grapes in a wine vinegar, if not the 
you know, that specific single origin wine. Uh, honey vinegar, there should be honey and water, and that's about it. What's amazing is that you can make vinegar from any alcohol, and you can make alcohol from most any sugar, and you can make sugar from most any starch. So really, you can make vinegar from any starch that can convert into a sugar, that can convert into alcohol, thusly become vinegar. So right. th- there's a huge world out there, and we've been limited to white distilled vinegar, which I can go on a <laughs> diatribe, and I think it's the devil. Um <laughs> Why Why not have flavor with your vinegar? Why not have a story behind it and have a maker who's been an artisan crafting this thing for years? We have so many pantry ingredients that we care about so dearly, and this right. has just been overlooked. Yeah, and as I was reading your book, there were a lot of stories, um, like you talk about households in Lyon and Paris used to pour all their old leftover red wine in like a crock um, on the stove, you talk about, um, I think it's Edward Lee, whose grandmother had some vinegar mother always underneath the the kitchen sink. Like it used to, I, I, I think, be much more integrated into people's lives, this creation of vinegar. Um, do you think that's something that has sort of declined over time as as it's become more accessible on a commercial scale or just like a lack of appreciation for that homemade vinegar? little bit of both. And I don't think it's a lack of appreciation, but a lack of understanding. I mean, I I didn't know about it up until, you know, the first time I ever tasted real vinegar was when I was in a kitchen in Boston, you know, as a young cook slash photographer. And Barbara Lynch of Number Nine Park gave me a cap full of something. Right. I didn't know what it was. (laughs) She said, take it. And when she tells you to take it, you take it back. (laughs) Um, And it was the most profound, you know, taste experience of my life at that point. Um, it was sapid, it was slightly sweet, it was piquant, it covered my mouth. I mean, the texture alone, um, it was olfactory, you know, I could smell it as well, and it just stayed with me. Um, so, 15 years later, uh, and this is in the book, this is mm-hmm. part of the acid trip, I find myself in Vienna at the doorstep of the guy who made that vinegar. I, I just knew it as Gegenbauer back then, and it was in this ornate glass bottle, and it was it said pH you know, noble sour on the label. I didn't know what that was. Now, now I know that's Pedro Jimenez grapes from, you know, Southern Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a drinking vinegar that he had made because he didn't want to drink schnapps. Right. Um, but the sensation of having that awaken your palate was unlike anything I had ever had awaken my palate. Yeah. So it, it was transformative. And I think real vinegar can be that for most people. So what we've had for the past, 50 plus, if not, you know, 70 years post-World War II has been very industrial. Uh, Before World War II, there were a lot of smaller vinegar makers in this country, um, primarily apple cider vinegar, because in the Northeast, Pacific Northwest, there are apples. Um, You know, we we have cane. We can do cane vinegars. We have wine countries. We can do wine vinegars. But I think the, the, the price for these commercial products, it was better to make that first product rather than that secondary or subsidiary one, which a lot of people think vinegar is. I love that story of coming back 15 years later to the maker of the vinegar who you you tried in the kitchen. Were there other experiences on your acid trip like that that really stood out for you? I mean, throughout (laughs) the book, I think it's littered. Going to France, uh, most cooks learn how to cook through traditional French technique. Right. Um, Rethinking what you know, mother sauces were or how to make something as simple as a beurre blanc or bernays or hollandaise that it's fat and acid and that most dishes that have um, that kind of balance have a vinegar component to it to balance that fat. And, you know, I never thought of 
barbecue like that until I realized I can only eat so much barbecue if it doesn't have a foil of acidity. It doesn't right. have a barbecue sauce, doesn't have a hot sauce. Same thing with eggs. There's an amazing fried egg dish that I was served in Paris called um, Oves a la Assassin or uh, murdered eggs. Right. Um, because for some reason, French kids don't like fried eggs. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> so parents will dribble a little bit of red wine vinegar on top to make it look like the egg was murdered. Right. <laughs> uh, and I was served this version actually using white wine vinegar emulsified with a little bit of butter. So like a, a beurre blanc and a whole bunch of fresh herbs. And uh, yeah, uh, fried eggs have never been the same. But it's the same reason I put ketchup on my you know, bacon, egg, and cheeses. Right. You need that acidity, and there's vinegar in that ketchup. Do you think acid is sort of having a moment in the cookbook world? Um, we we talked to Samin Nostra, who wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, obviously the four sort of essential elements of, of cooking. Um, we have your book, Acid Trip. Do you sense like a renewed interest or a, an increased interest in like the role that acid plays in cooking across all cultures and cuisines? Most chefs will tell you if a dish is missing something, it's acid. Yeah. You know, they're salt to taste, but it's really acid that makes a dish shine, mm -hmm. you know, uh, elevates it to another level. So I think a lot of these books are coming from not just novice cooks, but chef, you know, perspectives where in the kitchen, you're constantly being told this is missing acid, make sure it has acid. So I think there's certainly an awareness um, and understanding how important it is. But we've heard it for so long, like we're shouting it from the hilltops now, uh, because that what that's what makes food great. And it's so simple. It's such a small component. Because again, vinegar is, you know, pretty poignant acid. You need to use so little to make an impact. Although for home cooks, I think it's sort of maybe something that isn't necessarily inherent in our cooking abilities. I'm not a professional chef. And when I was reading Samin's book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, she talks about Thanksgiving um, as being this like American uh, meal that really lacks an acid. Ooh, yes. Um, and that really opened my eyes to me and the role that acid plays. How can you sort of improve your home cooking through simple acid uh, additions? Well, first, I got to say... Um one thing I've learned about Thanksgiving is the best thing to do is get out of the country <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. tickets to Europe are so cheap at that point. So I wholeheartedly uh, yeah. agree. <laughs> so I've been going to France the last couple of Thanksgivings. Uh -huh. uh, my wife is a wine writer and usually can get assignments during that time right after harvest when things are a little settled down. And we just try to go whenever we can. Sure. Um, and so we've had a very funny Thanksgiving the last couple of years. Uh, last year was in Beaujolais. So okay. I was eating like pike quenelles and having, you know, great gourmet grape wine. Um, because I've never really liked Thanksgiving. Yeah. I think for that reason Samin uh, said, um, except when I make stuffing, I usually make oyster stuffing and it has a good amount of acid going on. Sure. Um, it's necessary. The only acid you find during Thanksgiving is maybe the lactic acid with you know, cheese on something. Yeah, or cranberry sauce. True, just yeah. Like the but, one thing people just... <laughs> but it's not acidic. I mean, a cranberry can be tart and acidic as is, but cranberry sure. sauce is so sugary, there's no balance sure. right there. Right. So take that cranberry sauce and put a little red wine vinegar in it and tell me if you like it better. Yeah. Because it cuts through that sugar a little bit, doesn't make it so saccharine on the tongue, but it also brings out the, you know, inherent flavor of that cranberry. You can, you can taste the berry rather than just feel the tartness, the dryness of it. Um, right. Same go with a lot of wines like 
Beaujolais, they have a good amount of acid, so you can actually taste the fruit. Right. Um, one of my favorite things to do is make a fruit salad, a berries, uh, you know, cherries. Put a little sugar on to macerate them, bring the juices out, and then put a little bit of red wine vinegar in there to brighten it back up. Yeah. And it's it's such an amazing change. So simple, but really has a huge impact. As simple as, you know, a squeeze of lemon or lime, too, can really transform a dish. And I'm not an acid purist. I don't <laughs> hate lemons. I don't hate limes. They have their place. Right. But I did this weird experiment where I took a whole bunch of lemons, um, and I juice them day by day, and I taste them, and I test them. And it was so inconsistent from lemon to lemon right. the juice. And as they age day after day, they changed as well. The The difference between that and vinegar is vinegar is a consistent product. Yeah. In the bottle, it's the same pH, the same ingredient. So from an operations perspective, if you're thinking restaurants and scale, uh, teaching somebody how to cook with that is much more manageable than saying, you know, squeeze a little lemon and taste it. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Michael Harlan Turkle, author of Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. Now, I was really struck by what Michael said during our conversation about how ketchup on your bacon, egg, and cheese is actually the acid that helps meld the flavors and cuts through fat. I think it's just one of the really simple and easily graspable examples of how our taste buds guide us to what tastes good. Uh, No culinary knowledge required. That's why so many people love ketchup. But now, thanks to many cookbook authors uh, like Michael Harlan Turkle, who's joined us today, as well as Samin Nosrat, who wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat and joined us in our first season, we're seeing uh, an exploration of acidity that home cooks can really understand and fully celebrate that foundational building block that is vinegar or other acids. Now, I really loved some of the uses of acid throughout uh, the recipes in Michael Harlan Turkle's Acid Trip, uh, which he pulls from various chefs around the country as well as from his own creations. One of my favorites that that I am super eager to try is from Jenny Britton Bauer, uh, who you may know as the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. And she provides a recipe for Parmesan ice cream with balsamic cherry shrub, which sounds really amazing. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in the heart of San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We, of course, love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques you can bring back to your own kitchen from their expert staff and teachers. And I personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all of Salt and Spine's episodes. Now, don't miss some of their upcoming classes on topics like the basics of donuts, honing your knife skills, very important, and easy vegetarian party food. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Michael Harlan Turkle. Obviously, we're a show on cookbooks, so this is your first solo cookbook. It is. You've worked on other books before. Um, I th- you worked on an awful book with Chris Cosentino. I did. How is that experience different doing this book on your own versus working with uh, other chefs on their books? <laughs> uh you have no one else to blame. <laughs> you know, the, the liability is all on you. But I've known Chris Cosentino for a long time, and I was so happy to work on this book with him. Uh, we did awful good. But prior to that, I was a photographer of his. I cooked with him. I've you know, known him for well over a decade. So I knew him and his voice and his, his perspective. So it actually wasn't difficult to write in that sense. 
but there were junctures where I knew I was I was writing through his lens, but I had different thoughts about things. You get sure. to be a little unrestrained here, even yeah. though you know there are editors at publishing houses and. The reason I went to Abrams is because my editor is this man named Michael Sand, who has known me since I shot my first cookbook, the Clinton Street Baking Company cookbook, where I spent a week or two in that establishment in the Lower East Side photographing, and he's become a mentor and a, a great, great friend. So he's known my crazy vinegar story for a long time. Right. So there was a juncture where I said, I don't want to be this weird autodidact who makes vinegar in my backyard and cheese shop around the corner from my house. Like I need to get out and explore and learn more. Even though I think I make good vinegar, I don't know how other people really make it other than what I've read in limited text. There right. was really nothing in the world that informed me how not only it was made, but how it was used in context. Yeah. So I needed that. Writing a book from, you know, first person, um, I was the first person. I yeah. didn't have to parlay stories. I got to be there, and I got to give these details that I probably couldn't draw out of somebody else if I wasn't there with them, because there's that abstraction of how we interpret the world. So being in Japan, being in Miyazu, three and a half hours north of Kyoto, I saw 52,000 of these black Subo ceramic jars, and inside them were three ingredients. It was steamed rice, water, floating koji, um, and that yielded this outstanding version of black vinegar, or kurotsu, as they call it in southwest Japan. That impressed me. But what really impressed me was this volcano in the background called Mount Sakurajima. And it's the second largest volcano in Japan. It's active. It puffs. I thought it was clouds, but it was certainly, you know, uh, active. But it was the power, the feeling of that. I mean, it was so profound. I don't think I could have gotten that out of somebody unless, you know, they were able to express themselves in the same way. Right. Um, and I thought that was such an important part of that story. I mean, the vinegar certainly was tasting notes, et cetera. But, you know, having that almost spiritual connection with that active volcano and realizing that vinegar is very much an agricultural product and it's it's got a time and a place and the reason balsamic's made in only two cities in the world, you know, uh, Modena and Reggio uh, Emilia in, in Emilia Romagna, is because it can only really exist there. There's a, a passage from your book that I think speaks to that a little bit. You, you talk about vinegar and wine and the perception, uh, obviously, that wine sort of is very expressive and there's a lot of conversation and analysis that goes into a wine sense of terroir and the the whole, you know, aspect of what went into creating that wine and vinegar doesn't necessarily get that same sort of reverence and attention when it comes to that sense of place. So I think that's really interesting that you're able to provide some of that perspective to a lot of the vinegars through these travels. Yeah, like I said, it's an agricultural product, right. but uh, I don't think many people have thought of it that way because of how it's positioned on the shelf as a supermarket. Yeah. You no, know, it's a pantry ingredient. Yeah. But it's inherently made of something. Uh, scarily white distilled vinegar can be made of any alcohol because there's really no protocol. So that can include things like ethanol, maybe even petroleum. Right. So knowing where your vinegar comes from is a very important thing if you care about where your food comes from. So I only hope people actually go out and visit vinegar makers and vinegar factories and breweries and acetayas in Italy in the same way they would a vineyard and taste wine because 
It's also so amazing to taste that product in its place. Now, you also shot all the photography for your own cookbook. You're a photographer. How was that experience um, of being able to sort of bring both the words and the photos? Again, you're fully responsible, (laughs) Um, but you have a lot of control then in the storytelling. Well, that's where I screwed up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wearing so many hats at once um, takes some organization. And when I first started this project, I didn't realize how much time I needed for each hat, each part. Sure. So if you look at the Austria section, there aren't many photos because I didn't give myself the time to take the photos I wanted. So it was a huge learning curve because I've done all the different parts separately. Yeah. But Never all together. Well, I think it came together really nicely. There's, there's great photos. Um, so say somebody picks up your book, Acid Trip, at the store. They're new to, to vinegar making and they haven't made vinegar before. Where do you sort of suggest they dive in to get a first taste and a first experiment? In making their own vinegar, it is slightly intimidating. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I only put one recipe on how to make your own vinegar. And it's at the end of the book, and it's 10 to 12 pages long. Yeah. And it's a little choose-your-own-adventure, because right. that's what vinegar making is. You know, I can't tell you what base you're going to choose. I can't tell you uh, what environment you're going to make it in. I can't tell you what you want it to taste like at the end, because that's a choice of yours as well. But I can tell you what the controls are. Um, so the best ways to start making vinegar is wine is already preconditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it is in the right alcohol content for the most part to be turned into vinegar. So that 10 to 14% ABV, which most wines are, right. um, works. So that's why leaving a bottle of wine out and open works. Yeah, I love that you choose or include this sort of choose your own little adventure at the end and, and list some variations of, in, of vinegars you can make. Um, like you have the, the chocolate porter mm-hmm. vinegar that I think would probably go great with fish and chips. That it does. Um, that There's an apple pie vinegar. So you really sort of offer a few suggestions for people to experiment, which prompts me to ask if you have a favorite vinegar. I know that's like asking if you have a favorite child, but... Well, I don't have children yet. But <laughs> so you can have a favorite vinegar. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, my vinegar collection ballooned to about 500 bottles at a point during uh-huh. this process. Wow. My wife is a wine writer, so... That's like antithetical to everything she cares about and loves. <laughs> right. And you know, volatile acidity is often uh, off note in wine. So I'm down to about 50 bottles. And she's now taken over the wine fridge, which used to have a lot of vinegar in it. Um, the ones that I actually use most often, I think, are my favorites. Not, not the right. ones that are the special. I mean, I love a DOP, traditional, a balsamic. There's nothing like it in the world. Yeah. And balsamic vinegar is... Very ubiquitous when you speak about vinegar, but it's so extraneous in the context of other vinegars. So I like a utilitarian vinegar. Um, I love apple cider vinegars just because I am in New York and there's such great apple juice and apple culture there. Yeah. Um, I love rice vinegars because they're usually a little rounder and softer and slightly less acidic. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, for exclusive content, including featured recipes from Acid Trip, and to enter our regular cookbook giveaways. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. 
Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more summary stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.